Barefooting with Sierra uses Buzzsprout. Just start with the equipment you already have and a quiet space. Add Buzzsprout and your podcast is ready to go. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to show how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. Following the link in the show notes lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support the show. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout and get your message out to the world. Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of Barefooting with Sierra. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist, and I have been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. In this episode, I interview Indigenous artist Erin June. I'm going to break this podcast up into four parts. Novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my professional life. I will give you updates on what I am working on, let you know about any new works you can see, and keep you in the know about when I do free book giveaways on Amazon. Let's get started. First up, novels. In honor of Valentine's Day, I released that flash fiction fantasy romance piece I wrote when I was dealing with writer's block a few weeks ago. You can find that on Amazon in ebook format only. It's called Under the Light of the Full Moon, Matthew's Secret. It does verge into erotica, so if that's something you're uncomfortable with, that's fine, give this one a pass. If the thought of a werewolf erotica excites you, though, definitely check it out. In novel news today, two award-winning authors from Ontario will be reading at this month's Electric Mermaid event. Sylvia McNichol of Mississauga is the author of dozens of children's novels and the recipient of numerous awards, including a Manitoba Young Reader's Choice Award. The second feature author is a novelist, essayist, and short story writer, Sharon McInnes of Cumberland, Ontario. She has won multiple awards for her short stories, including winning first place in the Victoria Writers Society competition. Electric Mermaid live readings happen on the third Friday of every month via Zoom. Writers interested in reading their work at an event can email electricmermaidreads at gmail.com. Essays from the iconic Canadian novelist Margaret Atwood along with pieces from more than 140 other people with roots in Temiscam in Quebec, are featured in a centennial tribute publication. The book, Souvenirs de Temiscaming, is available on Amazon, with all proceeds going to charity. Now on to comics. Today's comic was brought to you by all of the anxiety nightmares I had last night. I've been dealing with an anxiety disorder since I was in preschool, and while I am on medication that helps a lot, anytime I have a routine change for any reason, anxiety rears its ugly head in the form of nightmares and insomnia. So with me starting a new job yesterday, I found it almost impossible to sleep last night. It's not that the job itself is stressing me out, it's the routine change. Even when I go on vacation, I have anxiety nightmares because of the routine change. So today's comic is Petunia laying in bed, begging anxiety to let her sleep. And now for today's interview with Indigenous artist Erin June. Hi Erin, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Hello, my name is Erin June. I moved to Edmonton uh, just over a decade ago to pursue a Bachelor of Education degree at the University of Alberta and achieved that with my major in human ecology, focusing on fashion studies 
and a minor in Native education, and then went directly once I graduated to teaching on reserve in Musquachese. That is, you know, Samson Cree Nation, where, you know, it's called like the ghetto or <laughs> that sort of thing. There's a lot of gun violence there, and uh, people were very afraid to, to go to that place. But I was very excited that that was my first posting as a, a new teacher. And um, so that was a really amazing you know, first experience there. Since then, I did some substitute teaching. And I have two children, 13 and 12. <laughs> and, uh, and they're, you know, both getting involved in the queer community. I've been taking them to pride parades since they were little. And one of them is actually turning into an artist. Like she's just got this amazing talent. And I feel very proud as an artist myself to have nurtured that along the way, you know, to make them proud of even just taking a chance in, in trying something new and, you know, putting it into the world. So that's been a really fun time with my kids. But I do have multiple sclerosis and that kind of got the best of me while I was doing substitute teaching, the stress of it and, and all of the, the demands, you know, it was, uh, it was a bit much. And I was able to go on Canada pension disability. It took a couple of years, but I finally got that underway and have been essentially retired now for, I guess, two years, which has given me a lot of time to focus on my art. Uh, you know, I've always had these little projects kind of piling up and not giving them a lot of attention, but not only since having, you know, the the joy of of not having to work. Thank you, you know, Canada's social plans. That, uh, that I've also been pursuing things that bring me great joy. And the one that I really have been excited about sharing is on Instagram under wooed uh, underscore by Miss June, W-O-O-E-D, because I started with woodworking. And so it was like, oh, hey, got wood. But then it was like, nah, that's a little bit too too gamey, you know, a little bit uh, juvenile. So like, nah, I think they're going to be wooed. So that just kind of stuck with me. The arts that I been sharing on there is upcycled art, primarily Jesus Christ, some people's Lord and Savior. I went to Catholic school myself as a young person and had a Christian stepfather from the Middle East. And so there was a very strict religious upbringing that I ended up being part of. It's very oppressive. You know, there, there wasn't joy, there wasn't love, you know, contrary to the message that uh, Jesus Christ was intending to bring at the time. Like from all the readings and whatnot, you know, as seeing images of Christ in in still everywhere was it was kind of alarming, you know, and and having to go to mass at Catholic school as a teenager and being rebellious and just trying to find little ways to rebel. You had to, you know, in a Catholic school, you can't like you can't go too far. <laughs> You kind of got to be polite about it. So we learned how to be creative in, uh, you know, at mass, my friends and I would look at each other and look up at the crucifix and uh, be like, he's watching. (laughs) And we didn't, you know, we didn't necessarily buy into things, but, you know, we still wanted to respect the people who, you know, who believe. Uh, You don't want to be a total jerk. We didn't anyway. So, you know, I had a lot of time over the years to kind of reflect on my relationship with religion. I followed a faith for a decade or so and really kind of learned a lot about myself and my own personal value, where they stem from and how I want to to change myself, you know, And, and this art has been a chance to do that. And since working on on reserve, you know, seeing a a lot of the, the fallout 
from residential schools and how messed with people's minds. It was supposed to be brotherly love from Christianity. It was meant to be everybody come together and and help one another and support. And I named this project WWJD. What wouldn't Jesus do? And I'll tell you what he wouldn't do. He wouldn't let people be sleeping in the streets when you have multiple buildings for your services around. That's kind of like, no, no, he wouldn't do that. Probably would be kneeling at the national anthem. Like... be right there, you know, with Black lives, with people of color, just Indigenous issues, like right there on the front line. And that to me was inspiring. And so I started doing some volunteer work in the inner city uh, with, you know, the Boyle Street Services and uh, other individuals. Ember Scrubs is this amazing local apothecary and they do volunteer work with the homeless communities. They do barbering. And so they'll set up tents in the inner city and people can come and just get a free haircut, a shave you know, just to bring some dignity to the community. And it was those little things and seeing people involved that uh, that really inspired me. And um, once I get all of my works done, my intention is for the What Wouldn't Jesus Do project to be a, a source of support, of income support for Camp Kiwiwin. Uh, it was one of the camps that was in the River City for primarily Indigenous people who are houseless in Edmonton. And I would really just love once the coronavirus lockdown is lifted more to get back to, you know, just being involved and and helping out. But for now, this is the way that that I can help out where I can is just by by sharing my artwork and bringing humor to it. You know, like I try really hard to make sure that there's some tongue in cheek there, that it's not really offensive. My mom was worried about that when I started. It's just blasphemous enough that you get the point across without it becoming profane. Yes, exactly. Right. And that's a, it's a really fun line to walk too, you know, because there's a lot of exploration that has to happen and, and talk about reconciliation, you know, just even within, within myself that how do I make these things work, correlate with each other in a positive way where they have never been before. For sure. Yeah. How did you get started doing that what wouldn't Jesus do series oh I had uh an ironic Jesus wall for a time you know just because I do a lot of thrift shopping you know growing up without a lot of means we just you know we may do and we had a lot of fun going to garage sales and things I think that's a really good uh Canadian pastime you know (laughs) what do you do on the weekend We're going to go buy some other people's junk. Uh, Goodwill is one of my favorites because they hire people with disabilities and uh, really do community support, uh, which is nice. But yeah, and so I just saw these really strange white Jesus pictures in the Goodwills and was like, this is bizarre. Like some people are dying right now and this is their estate coming in here. Like there's some real religionists and I, I don't know. And here's this person, apparently, you know, or, you know, alleged, I don't know, maybe he existed, but is this idol and they say you're not meant to worship false idols but here's this image that's been just passed around over and over again i think that 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 was one of the white people's very first appropriations was jesus christ there's no such thing as a white person where he came from (laughs) 
<laughs> so the meme culture too has been really fun. You know, seeing some of those things come around where it's like, Jesus, the only white guy, you know, targeted much. I started getting into my own my own art. I, I'm really pretty good at replicating other things or doodling, but I wanted to advance my own skills. So for that, I started drawing birds, and that was one of my favorite things. And so getting the actual main focal point of a piece was pretty easy. You know, it's like, yes, I'm really good at birds now, but where is it? It's just a bird in, you know, floating on a blank canvas. So I started practicing doing background and that's where the Jesus paintings come in. It was like, he would look way better if he had a beer hat on right now. Like... He needs to be doing something, you know, like what wouldn't Jesus do? He wouldn't sit around staring at like a portraiture, like he would be in the mix. You know, and and who's to say we don't know anything about that man? You know, he could have been queer. Like I've got one of my pieces of art that has a rainbow behind this uh, postcard that I found. Uh, and he's standing there with flower petals in his hand and they're just floating away. And he looks so sad and kind of androgynous, to be honest. And so I entitled it, Z Loves Me, Z Loves Me Not. We had no idea what his gender was. We're making assumptions that Jesus was a straight white male. Why? Because the straight white males needed to, you know, make it accessible to them. So yeah, that's, uh, that's always kind of rumbling around in my head. And then this is a way also for me to take that straight white male culture and then flip it around again on them by putting him in positions that those people engage in. Like the, uh, the magician one that I'm working on too, you know, <laughs> I think what's going to happen is that his uh, blood is going to come out and it's like turning into wine. You know, he's like going to be pouring it into a glass or something. Love it. How creepy is that? You know, come on, eat the body and drink the blood. Who's the weirdos here? It's cannibalism. It's creepy. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would argue that there's more biblical evidence for Jesus being gay than there is for Jesus to be straight because there's, right? there's all those passages about the apostles like cuddling up to Jesus and laying yeah. on his chest. And then there's yeah. John the beloved and yep. like apostle who Jesus loves. Like- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like one of the, probably one of the greatest love stories of all time. And it just, it got straight washed. Like, Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate because it's, man, imagine like if that were the truth that had been told, our world today would, you know, it'd be a a much more loving one. Yeah, it's a, it's an unpopular opinion that I have. um, (laughs) I'm I'm quite religious. Yeah, I know, right? But it's that's the at least you know your mind is is like a place of solitude where you can go and have your own your own beliefs, you know, whether you exactly. share them or not or exactly. whatever. It's like whatever's going on in there, it's all up to you, you know. I love that. That's I'm an introvert, so I get I just take a lot of of joy from you know being at home all, on my own and coming to terms with my own thoughts and realities. <laughs> For sure. And then you also have jewelry that you make that have like nature 
elements with your woodworking. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. When I was living in the Northwest Territories and I went to high school in Yellowknife and then went to university in BC and then moved back to the North and finally ended up in Fort Smith and met my first husband there and had two kids and, you know, did all of that. And it's this really lovely, isolated community with Cree and Chiquan native peoples and, uh, and Métis as well. So it's, it's primarily indigenous community. Uh, we used to go on these hikes and it was a challenge because, you know, I've, I've had MS for 20 years now. Uh, it was a little bit more manageable then, but we would go on hikes and while everyone else was off continuing to explore, I would just be kind of on the beach, relaxing, trying to regenerate my energies to get back up that freaking hill. While I was doing that, I noticed that there were all of these little pieces of treated bark that had come off of trees because Fort Smith has these world-renowned rapids, just amazing stellar rapids for whitewater rafting. And people come from all around the world to do that there. And at some points, it has been threatened because because of industry not far up the Slave River uh, from Fort McMurray. And so all of those oil sands and they wanted to do more damming and it would have destroyed that whole area. And so people were just like, come on, we have to save this. We've got to, you know, there was a Slave River paddle club that started up, you know, and that community support, it has made a big difference there. Francois Paulette with the Treaty 8 territory negotiations, he's got some amazing success happening there as well and so uh, I'm really proud that uh, that his his wife is a midwife and got to deliver both of my babies just naturally in this little tiny town like it was quite an experience but back to the wood So I found these little pieces of bark and I was like, these are amazing and unique. And, and I started just collecting them and took them home and set them out and dried them up. And every time we went back, I would do that again. I would just collect more bark. And I saw so much in them. I just, I was amazed, you know, that it's almost like pieces of prehistory because trees are ancient and the ones that are falling into the rapids, like who knows where they've come from and then just been washed up here. And so they're beautiful little pieces of history. And I love the the feel of them. So uh, I started just like drying them and polishing, maybe putting some like orange oil on them, you know, keeping it pretty natural. And they're beautiful. They have such a nice feel on the body, you know, just that carrying nature around with you. I don't know, it had a really a, a nice kind of energy to it. Yeah. So I have a whole bunch more that are just waiting for me to get to them. But, you know, between doing jewelry and cross stitch and painting and, uh, you know, cooking for my kids all the time because of COVID. Like, yeah, got to prioritize. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of in that boat too. It's like mm-hmm. mom yeah. life pandemic struggles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, for real. It, you know, how are you doing with it? Eh, I'm, I'm coping. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, that's decent. You know, that's a decent kind of bare minimum. I order more Uber Eats than I probably should, but <laughs> that's how I cope. True. Yeah. I'm with you. 100%. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get people fed. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Right. It's a, it's okay. This too shall pass as they say. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're an indigenous Canadian, you're uh, two spirit, you're queer. How do you incorporate those parts of yourself into your art? You know, I've kind of been asking myself the same questions because I don't know, like if you are an indigenous artist, are you doing indigenous art? Is there such a thing? 
as Indigenous art? I don't know. I kind of ask myself that often. I think that it's my values and my worldviews that are truly uh, the most effective on my art. I started doing a a comic for myself, mostly, just to kind of like a, you'd call it a visual journal, you know, where instead of writing, I would just, I would draw. And it wasn't good, wasn't great, but it's therapy. I needed to get that out. Uh, My role in our family uh, has often been to to break the tension, you know, to make the confrontations, say the hard things, and then make something, some comic lightness of it at the end. Uh, I've never made anybody laugh harder than my own mother, you know, like she tells me stories of just like when I was just one years old or or whatever. And they're really good stories and, you know, probably going to do some stand-up comedy about them sometime, but uh, that's just another thing to add to the list. But, but yeah, the worldviews for sure. That's uh, really important to me. My dad was not native. It was my mother's side that is Coast Salish from Vancouver Island. Our ancestor was part of the Cowichan Nation. My sister just the other day was asking me about how I was feeling about some of these cultural appropriations that have been happening, um, you know, with ostensibly white ladies pretending to be native. Even though I'm the eldest of five children, we're, we all have the same mother, the same link and claim to Native ancestry. I'm the only one that identifies as being Indigenous. My sister has long red hair, you know, and she's very, very fair. And she doesn't identify as Indigenous. She sees, you know, she knows our history, whatever. But she's like, okay, yeah, that's just one part of it. You know, I'm not, she's not drawn one way or the other. She just is. She's like, oh, I'm just Canadian. And that's cool. You know, we have the freedom and the abilities to do that. That's amazing. And my three youngest have a different father. Uh, and so they are part Egyptian, <laughs> but they don't identify either with that indigenous side of our family. And so here I am trying my best to not look white my whole life, you know, and, and the rest of my family is just like, no, we're good. It's okay. But you just don't know what's going to draw you, you know, what your passions are going to be when it comes to it. I had a lot of wrong ideas in my youth too, just because of being the wrong kind of native person, you know, like everywhere, everywhere I went. It's like, well, no, you're not this kind. So you don't get these benefits, you know, and, and it just creates those barriers between Native peoples ourselves. You know, we are a very diverse group of peoples. And it's been really amazing to kind of work with and discover the true diversity within the cultures. Yeah, I've really loved that. But in the meantime, you know, I've got some really great artwork and beautiful Haida art that um, Coast Salish tattoo artist Dion Kazas did for me. I saw him out after seeing his work done on uh, APTN actually on Skindigenous and uh, sought him out and did this really big sacred kind of pilgrimage uh, driving by myself out to BC into the interior and it was amazing this whole thing I just went into nature beforehand and communed and uh, yeah in you know in two different sessions he did my two spirit animals and this one on this side is a raven it's pink because that's like my my ooh shiny (laughs) side (laughs) I like pretty things kind of like the birds do and then on this is uh, salmon and my father worked for fisheries his entire career and so that was that allowed us to grow up in northern BC uh, around the people from Haida Gwaii it was just remarkable you know growing up in in that sacred land it uh, it was another part of what shaped us and so my love for nature is something I really integrate into my artwork that's awesome that you were able to do that (laughs) oh it's been so fun talking to you 
thank you for reaching out. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. It's been great. It's like the first chance I've had to talk to anybody outside of my bubble, you know, like how miraculous. Well, that's, that's literally why I started the podcast is because I've been like in social isolation and not talking to anybody and I miss it. Good for you, you know, <laughs> really. And that's all it takes. You've got the tools and you're making it happen. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for involving me. You can follow Erin on Instagram at M-I-S-S dot E-R-I-N dot J-U-N-E. And you can follow her art Instagram at W-O-O-E-D underscore B-Y dot M-I-S-S dot J-U-N-E. All right, next up is journalism. Every day in February, I'm going to highlight one influential Black history figure. Today's Black History Month highlight is Pat Cleveland, the first Black supermodel. Patricia Cleveland was born on the 23rd of June, 1950, in New York City, to jazz saxophonist Johnny Johnston and artist Ladybird Cleveland. She was raised by her mother in Harlem. She developed an interest in design and performing arts in high school and originally wanted to be a fashion designer. When she was 16 years old, a fashion editor for Vogue saw her on the subway, loved her style, and invited her to come to the magazine to be featured as an up-and-coming designer. That article led to Ebony coming to her to request her to model for them on a national runway tour. She attracted attention from top designers on this tour and signed with Wilhelmina Models upon returning home. She eventually worked for many industry greats and even modeled for painters Andy Warhol and Salvador Dali. Despite her talent and success, several designers in the United States refused to work with her because she was black. In 1971, she left the United States to move to Paris, vowing not to return until a black model appeared on the cover of Vogue. In Europe, she modeled for designers such as Valentino, Oscar de la Renta, Yves Saint Laurent, and Christian Dior. After Beverly Johnson became the first black model on the cover of Vogue in 1974, Cleveland returned to the United States and continued her modeling career there. In the mid to late 70s, she graced the covers of several magazines, including Vanity Fair, Harper's, Cosmopolitan, GQ, W, and L. She was first termed a supermodel in the June 1980 issue of Ebony. In 1978, Cleveland married male model Martin Snarek. After divorcing Snarek, she married the Dutch former model Paul van Ravenstein in 1982. She semi-retired from modeling after the birth of her first child in 1984. In 1995, she started her own modeling agency in Milan. In 2003, she and her daughter Anna walked for Chanel at Paris Fashion Week. In 2010, she appeared as a guest judge on America's Next Top Model. She and her husband, Paul, currently live outside of Morristown, New Jersey. And now for today's current events. The southern U.S. continues to be battered by Arctic temperatures. Some areas saw as much snow in one day as they normally get in a decade. Road crews are working around the clock to clear the roads and ask everyone to avoid driving as much as possible. The friction of tires on the road heats up the snow and causes it to melt, then it refreezes into ice, which makes the roads more dangerous for everyone especially when the crews only have a limited amount of road salt on hand. Driving also creates traffic for the road crews. They have one additional request. When clearing snow from your sidewalk, remember to shovel it onto your yard, not into the street, as this just creates more work for them. The Leaders Educational Foundation is offering a $15,000 scholarship to 13 West Tennessee high school seniors. To qualify for the scholarship, the applicant must currently be enrolled in grade 12 in a high school in West Tennessee, have been accepted to a four-year bachelor program, 
and either have a parent or grandparent in the Leaders Education Foundation or have good standing with Leaders Credit Union. For more information and to apply, visit leadersgives.org. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. My book, A Brief Guide to Barefooting, is available as a free ebook through February 18th. Make sure you head over to Amazon to grab that during the promotion if you don't have a copy already. I went for another brief barefoot walk tonight, a little half lap around my apartment building. It was cold, but not as cold as last night. I probably could have done a full lap if I pushed myself, but two police cars pulled up with their lights on at a building near mine that is notorious for drug use. Normally, I stay and watch to make sure everyone's okay when I see cops, but I just did not have the energy tonight. I'm so exhausted from my new job. It's good exhausted, but really, I have to prioritize. And I recognize my privilege in being able to even say that. It was minus 16 Celsius or 3 Fahrenheit, so significantly warmer than my barefoot walk last night. And it's actually going to be above freezing on Friday. Sunday will even be warm enough for a long barefoot walk. I can't wait. In barefoot news today, Two of Us, a French lesbian romance film, has received an Oscar nomination for Best International Feature Film. It breaks a huge romance trope by featuring older women. One of the leads is in her 70s and has a full head of gray hair. This movie isn't just erotic or sweet, their love actually has nuance to it. And there's a scene of them dancing barefoot together. You can find Two of Us on Amazon and YouTube. Ohio's Youngstown State University is getting a late start to their football season thanks to the pandemic, but a late start is better than no start at all. The Penguins will open their season on Sunday at North Dakota State. Colt McFadden is returning as place kicker for his second year. The McFadden family has a history with Youngstown State football. Colt's brother Connor was also a kicker for the team from 2013 to 2016, and their father Paul McFadden from 1980 to 1983. Paul McFadden was famous as a kicker because he always kicked barefoot. He finished his football career with 240 points, making 52 field goals and 78 extra point kicks. That's all for today's show. I'm taking the day off tomorrow. I'll be back on Friday with another interview, this time with author and civil rights activist Paula Ewing. Thanks so much for listening in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at sierrathebarefoot on Facebook as Sierra the Barefoot Girl, on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot, and on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot. You can follow the podcast itself on Instagram at Barefooting with Sierra. All of my books are available on Amazon. My comics are available on Instagram at World of Possums and Patreon.com slash Possum Pete. Thank you to Legion X for the intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and please share it with a friend if you've enjoyed it. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.